Lord, we ask that you would come. We have laid the sacrifice on the altar and we poured water on it and now we're asking that you would send fire from heaven, Lord. Lord, you know the condition of the heart of every person here. I don't. Nobody else does, Lord, but, but you do. And so I pray that you would do what needs to be done in each heart. Use your word today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a cartoon of a church with a big billboard. And on the billboard it says, The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7% tithe, 15-minute sermons, and 45-minute worship services. We only believe in eight commandments. You choose which ones. Everything you've ever wanted in a church and less. And we chuckle with that because, well, I think because it kind of hits close to home. If you've, if you've ever looked for a church, or if you've ever talked to someone who has looked for a church, you realize that we've been sucked into the American culture. Our culture is consumeristic. We're driven by what we want. We're the me generation. And so when we look for a church, what do we look for? Something that's going to meet my needs. I wanted to have a professional band. You know, I want there to be music and lights and smoke bombs going off during the worship services. I want the preacher to be, you know, passionate and relevant and practical and meeting all of my personal needs when I come to church. There's got to be a, a kid's program that is outstanding. There's got to be ample parking and easy to get in. And so we have all of these things that we look for in a particular church. What we're doing oftentimes is we're looking for a church where we really don't have to get too involved and requires very little commitment because we really don't want that. We want to just spend an hour, an hour and a half on a Sunday and there we go, there's our church service. Well, nothing could be further from Jesus' radical call to discipleship than that consumeristic driven society that we live in. We're going to see that today. There was a recent Gallup poll, and in this poll it was revealed that less than 10% of evangelicals could be called deeply committed. Now an evangelical is one who confesses to be born again. Less than 10%. This poll revealed the majority do not know basic Christian teachings, and they do not live differently because of them. They live just like anybody else out in the world. One Lutheran pastor put it this way, 90% of our parishes across the country require less commitment than the local Kiwanis Club. And I think he was probably dead on right. Now that stands in complete contrast to what we're going to read today when th three different people either volunteer to follow Jesus or Jesus comes and commands them to start following him. In these three examples, we're going to see that Jesus Christ requires total commitment from those who would follow him. Not half-hearted, not partial commitment. He wants all of us. And he'll have all of us or we can't follow him, according to his own words that we're going to see here. Now, what I want you to see in our text is the word follow. Verse 57, this man comes up to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 59, Jesus said to another, follow me. Verse 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord. 
Follow is the operative word that I want you to concentrate on. We're going to be learning today about following Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus said, follow me, he used the present imperative. And I'll tell you what that means. Imperative means it's a command. Present tense means it's ongoing. It's continual. So Jesus wasn't saying, follow me for the next 30 minutes. He was saying to these people, follow me and continue to follow me the rest of your life. And that's what Jesus does when he calls a person to salvation. He calls them to start following him, but not for a brief period of time. He calls them to begin and then to continue following him for the rest of that person's life. And you know, this is in stark contrast, isn't it, to how we evangelize today. Jesus just didn't evangelize the way we do evangelism. Have you ever noticed that? Read through the Gospels and compare how Jesus did evangelism with how we do it. Now, what do we do? We say, just give your heart to Christ. Accept Jesus into your heart. Raise your hand when Billy Graham asks for those who want to be saved. Or stand up publicly. Or go down to an altar and pray with someone to receive Christ. Or say the sinner's prayer. Folks, how many times in Jesus' ministry did he ask someone to raise their hand? Zero. How many times did he ask him to sign a card or walk an aisle or say a prayer in order to be saved? Zero. He never did it. How many times did his apostles do it? Read the book of Acts and the, the sermons of Peter and then Paul. How many times in their sermons did they get people to pray the prayer, the sinner's prayer, or walk an aisle? It's just not in our Bible. And yet this is modern evangelicalism. Jesus was just totally different. And I think it would do us well to learn our evangelistic methods from Jesus rather than from popular culture, even if it's well-meaning evangelical popular culture. How did Jesus go about it? Well, when Jesus evangelized, it was really hard to get saved. You ever notice that? It was really hard to get saved because people like these guys would come up and volunteer to be his disciples and he'd start telling them why they shouldn't do it. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And they'd say, well, Lord, I'll do it, but just let me go home and say goodbye. No man after he's put his hand to the plow is fit for the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 14, crowds, big crowds, were following Jesus. And he turns around and instead of being glad, now you'd think that Jesus would be happy about this. Wow, look at all the people that are following me. He doesn't react that way. Instead he starts to sift them. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to hate your mother and father, brother and sister, wife, daughter, child, even your own life, or you can't be my follower. You have to be willing to take up your cross, or you can't be my follower. And you have to be willing to give up all your possessions or you can't be my follower. So instead of making it easy for these people that wanted to follow him, he made it really hard. He was like he was trying to drive them off. And if, he, if he couldn't drive them off, well, then that's, that's the sign that they were meant to stay. But if they could be driven off, he was happy with that. He was fine with that. Isn't that totally different? I mean, when people come through this door, I hope they stay. Man, I hope these people stay in our church. But maybe I should be a, middle, a little bit more like Jesus. Just tell the truth. And those that stay, they're the ones that God is calling and drawing and in the end will find everlasting life. In Luke 9, 57-62, we are introduced to three men. I'm going to call these would-be followers of Jesus. 
And as we take a look at them, we're going to ask ourselves, are we like these fellows or not? Can we see ourselves in either of these three men? We have Mr. Too Quick, Mr. Too Slow, and Mr. Double-Minded here. The one who made a rash commitment, the one who made a delayed commitment, and then the one who is double-minded about his commitment, who is looking backward and forward at the same time. Let's look at Mr. Too Quick. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now over in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, that's the parallel passage to this one, it tells us this man was a scribe. And a scribe was a very influential man in Jewish society. He was a copyist of the scriptures. He would take one copy and he would spend hours and hours copying that one onto another parchment to preserve the scriptures from one generation to the next. He also had to be an expert in the law of God. So he was a respected man within the Jewish community. And in fact, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had kind of teamed up and they were generally antagonistic towards Jesus. So it's unusual that we find a scribe wanting to follow Jesus. By this time, most scribes wanted to kill Jesus. But this, here we have someone who just didn't fit the pattern. Now, I wonder why. Why was he so excited about following Jesus that he said, Lord, I'll go with you wherever you go. Just let me follow you. Well, I think I have an idea. If he had been hanging out with Jesus in the crowds, he'd seen some pretty unusual things, hadn't he? He'd seen people with blind eyes see for the first time in their life. And he'd seen people that were paralyzed and couldn't get up, stand up and start walking. And he'd seen someone take a few biscuits and sardines and feed 5,000 men plus women and children at one sitting. He'd seen this man raise people who had been dead until they're, they're alive. They, they get up and they start eating and walking around. He'd seen some amazing things. And he'd heard the greatest teaching he'd ever heard in his entire life. He must have been riveted and stunned by the person of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the Jews expected that their Messiah, when he finally came, would overthrow the Romans and rule from Jerusalem. And I wonder if this man had a hankering to be there when it all came down and he was at Jesus' right hand. And perhaps he would get to receive some of the glory when that kingdom finally was established. Well, for whatever reason, he was quick to sign up with Jesus Christ. But Jesus gives him a really strange response, doesn't he? Instead of saying, well, you want to follow me wherever I go? That's exactly the kind of person I've been looking for. This is wonderful. Welcome to the ranks. No, he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. In other words, the foxes and the birds have it better than I do. Do you know what you're signing up for? I'm homeless. I don't own a home. I don't own a bed. I have to depend on my father to provide for me every night that I want to go to sleep. Uh, he, he either provides me through people or through supernatural means or sometimes I just sleep out in the open. Do you, do you really know what you're getting yourself into? Do you know the hardships of becoming one of my followers? You see, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. We just read that back in 50, verse 51. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now why? 
What's going to happen to him in Jerusalem? He's going to be crucified, isn't he? Well, does this fellow know that he's headed with Jesus to a place where Jesus Christ is going to be nailed and lifted up before men? I don't think so. And so what he's saying is, put the brakes on a little bit. You're, you're a little too quick here. You haven't counted the cost. You don't know what it's going to mean to be my follower. Give this some real thought. And I also think that Jesus knew this man's heart. I believe that this man's God, you might say, was material comfort and luxury and ease. He's a scribe. He's probably wealthy. He's probably got a nice home with a very nice, comfortable bed. He's got a family there that he loves. And Jesus is requiring that he leave all of those material comforts and go with him to who knows what's going to happen. And so Jesus addresses the heart issue, the idolatry issue with him. I think we need to take a lesson from Jesus when we talk to lost people about the gospel. We tend to want to sugarcoat it and try to make it as attractive as we can because we think we need to sell the gospel. We, 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 need to, we, we have to find some way to get them to you know, make that decision for Christ. And so we make it as palatable and as sweet and as enticing and as attractive as we can. Well, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus made it as hard as he could. We're going about it just backwards, completely backwards. Now I wonder, is there anybody here who can identify with Mr. Too Quick? Because you are an emotional person or an impetuous person and you tend to make rash, quick decisions before you've thought it through. Maybe we need to learn from Mr. Too Quick. Count the cost. Over in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells him, no man, if he's going to build a tower, doesn't sit down and count his money up and figure out if he has enough, enough money to complete that building project. Or no king goes into battle if he's only got 10,000 people against 20,000 soldiers unless he's sure that he can overcome his enemy. Now, of course, in our own strength, we do not have the strength to overcome our enemy. But we're not depending on our own strength, are we? We're depending on the strength of Almighty God to see us through. But it is, it is good and helpful when you have someone interested in the gospel to tell them, okay, this is what it's going to be like. You know, you've heard that old commercial, things go better with Coke. We just change that around and we say, well, things go better with Christ. You're going to have a better marriage, better family. Your kids are going to be better. You're going to have more money in the bank. You're going to get a better job. Everything's going to be great if you just follow Jesus. And the truth is, you might lose your job for following Jesus. <laughs> your wife may leave you. Your kids may be split up and some go off with the children. Things may get worse rather than better if you truly follow Jesus. I think we need to tell people just straight up, following Jesus is hard. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done to follow Jesus Christ because he's going to demand that you surrender your life to him. He's not going to take you unless you surrender. And unless you're willing to surrender, there's no going with him. There's no following with him. So let me just ask you this morning, what is your supreme treasure? Because only the person who makes Jesus Christ their supreme treasure is going to be willing to follow him and be willing to accept the demands he put on, puts on a person's life. And in order for him to be your supreme treasure, your, your eyes are going to have to be opened to who he is. Do you know the Bible says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ? That's why people don't follow him. 
That's why people are not willing to surrender to who he is. They just don't see him for who he is. The devil's got him blinded. They don't see his glory. But if God rips off that veil and shows you who Jesus is, you will be willing to leave anything behind. Nothing will be too hard to lay down for him. So any Mr. Two Quicks here, let's take a lesson. Count the cost. Realize it's not always going to be easy. It's going to be difficult to follow Jesus. Mr. Too Slow. Let's look at him. Verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now over in Matthew chapter 8, we're told that this man was a disciple, which simply means that he was a learner. Not all learners were actual uh, actually saved people. They just came along, they were attached to Jesus in one way or another, they were learning, but sometimes there would be a crisis point where Jesus would call them to make that radical commitment to surrender all and follow him, and some weren't willing to make that particular decision. So here we have a disciple. In this case, Jesus takes the initiative, doesn't he? In the first case, the man comes up and volunteers. Here Jesus goes to him, and he calls to him specifically and says, follow me. Now, notice that this man doesn't outright reject Jesus' authority. He doesn't say, no, Lord, sorry, I'm not interested. He is interested, but he's just a little bit more interested in something else. What is it? It's about burying his father. His father has his heart. Now, look at a couple words in this verse, verse 59 and 60. Jesus says, follow me. And the man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Do you see any two words in there that just don't make sense? <laughs> me first. Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You've heard of oxymorons, haven't you? Well, Lord and me first, when you put those together in a sentence, that's an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. You know, those two words don't fit well together. Or government intelligence. Or pretty ugly or freezer burn, or there's all kinds of them we can come up with. But this is an oxymoron. Lord, me first. Well, no, that just doesn't compute. If he's the Lord, you're not first. He's first. Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. He's saying, Lord, I will follow you, but I'll follow you after something else. I'm willing to follow you, but you're not really the highest priority. Burying my father is a higher priority than following you. Now we would say, boy, it seems like the Lord's kind of harsh here. I mean, gee whiz, isn't it okay to go and attend your father's burial and take care of him? We have the idea that this man had just died like 10 minutes ago. That's probably not the case. His father's probably alive, and he may not die for months or even years. Um, see, if this man had died, in the Jewish culture, they buried them right away, within hours. That same day, they, they were in the ground or in a tomb. And so if he had just died, I don't think he's going to be going talking to Jesus in the midst of a crowd. He's going to be back at home trying to figure out what to do about this burial situation. This is a way for him to say, Lord, I have a commitment to my father. I need to hang around home until he's dead. I need to make sure he's properly buried. And then when all of that is taken care of, I'll go ahead and I'll follow you. So yes, I'll follow you, but just not right now. What's he doing? 
He's putting conditions on his obedience. He's putting qualifications on it. I'll follow you when. I'll follow you if. And Jesus is telling these three men, there are no conditions that you're allowed to make. There are no qualifications that you're allowed to make. I am the Lord, and you're not. I'm God, and I'm telling you, follow me. If Jesus is truly the Lord, then it makes sense that he calls the shots, doesn't it? We, we exist in this me culture that it's, it's hard for us to see anything otherwise. But I, I think we see clearly in the scriptures, Jesus would not put up with our me culture, our me-centeredness, our self-centeredness. We say, well, gee, isn't it reasonable for this man to go bury his father? I mean, doesn't the fifth commandment say, honor your father and mother? Doesn't it say in 1 Timothy that if a man won't provide for his household, he's worse than an unbeliever? That's all true, isn't it? That's all scripture. Yes, we ought to take care of our family. We ought to provide for our family unless that's going to cause us to collide with the direct commandment of Jesus Christ. And we're forced to choose now between family or Jesus. And whenever you're forced to choose between family or Jesus, Jesus always comes first. You see, we can, we can care for our parents because we love Jesus, but we can't care for our parents instead of loving Jesus. There must be a clear commitment and delineation in your mind that Jesus Christ and His kingdom come first no matter what. Over your wife, over your husband, over your children, over your father, over your mother, over your brothers, over your sisters, over anybody in this world. I remember when Debbie and I were getting married. This is July 11th, 1981. So about 33 years ago. I had only been saved two years. And we decided that we were going to write our own vows for our wedding. And I look back and I thank God that even at two years old as a young Christian, the Lord had taught me something. Because I, my vow started with this. Debbie, I will... Love and serve you more than any other person or thing in this world other than my love and service for Jesus Christ. So I thank God that at least at that young age, the Lord had taught me the most essential element of being a Christian, that Jesus comes first. That's what this man needed to learn, and he hadn't learned that lesson yet. It was all about him and what he was going to do for his father. Now, ask yourself this. What's more important, something that's temporary or something that's eternal? Well, of course, something that's eternal, right? Families are temporary. Even though we cherish them, we love them, we thank God for them, they're temporary. The kingdom of Christ is eternal. And so you can't say that the kingdom is less valuable than your own family. You just can't do that. I, I, sometimes it cracks me up when I go to a funeral service or a memorial service and people stand up and they talk about the person that just died. And what do they always say about this person that just died? Oh, how he loved his family. He was such a family man. He just would do anything for his family. As though that is the greatest possible virtue in life to be a person that loves their family. How many times have you been to a funeral where they got up and said, this man loved Jesus Christ more than anything. And this man would do anything for Jesus Christ. I don't think I've ever heard that in my life. 
because the world doesn't understand that that is the kingdom value. Now, they can understand that you love your family. That's a worldly value. To love Christ above all, that's a kingdom value, an eternal value. And that's the value that must be in our hearts if we're going to see Christ in glory one day. If we value our family more than Jesus, we're committing high treason against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, I want the dead to bury the dead. Let the, let the dead bury the dead. I want you to go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of Christ. Now, what is he talking about? The dead bury the dead. Does he mean he's going to raise up some dead people that are going to go bury some dead? No. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, let the spiritually dead people go and bury physically dead people. An unbeliever is just as qualified to bury somebody as a believer is. All you've got to do is buy a tomb and put them in the tomb and close it, right? Or, or, or dig a hole six feet, put them in the ground and cover it with dirt. Any unbeliever can do that. Let the spiritually dead do that kind of work. I've called you for something greater than that. Let your life be indispensable. You busy your life with doing those things that no unbeliever can do. You go and preach everywhere the kingdom of Christ. In other words, make it your driving ambition of your life to extend Jesus' kingdom in the world. How many of you have that as the number one priority of your life? To love Christ by extending His kingdom in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 10.37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now what about you? Can you identify with Mr. Too Slow? The one who makes a delayed commitment to Christ? You know, when you were a kid, you said, yeah, I, I know I should follow Jesus, but I'll just wait till I get through with high school. You know, I want to go through the dating period, and I want to have a girlfriend, and I want to have my fun. And then after high school, you say, well, just after college, Lord. And then after college, just until I get married, Lord, and then I'll serve you. And then after I have some kids. I was just talking to a brother last week who said that's exactly what happened to him. He grew up in a Christian home. And he said that he knew he needed to serve Jesus, but he just didn't do it. And he made all these excuses, and he kept getting older and older, and finally he was in his mid-40s, and he said, man, I'm getting old. When am I ever going to do what I said I was going to do? And two days later, he got on his knees and repented, and he's been following Jesus ever since. That's a delayed commitment. If you're delaying your commitment to Christ, it's sin. It's positive sin in the eyes of God. He calls you. He calls you to repent and follow His Son. And if you delay and say, I'll do it someday, you're doing the same thing that this man was rebuked for. Let's look at the third man, Mr. Double-Minded. The man who had a divided commitment to Christ. We read his story in verse 61 and 62. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now notice this fellow. I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Again we find, instead of me first, it's first me. First permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And there's another huge word. It's only three letters long, but it's huge in this sentence. Do you see it? I will follow you, Lord, but... There's a condition here, Lord. 
Do you know the Lord requires unconditional surrender to Him if you're going to follow Him? Unconditional. You can't put any conditions upon it. You can't say, Lord, when this happens, I'll follow you, or if you do this for me, I'll follow you. It's whatever. He's the Lord. He calls the shots. Whether your life turns out better or worse, it's not even to be regarded. I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Now again, this seems very reasonable. I mean, who would expect Jesus just to say, start following me and don't even tell your family members where you went? You know, just go home, get back in an hour, and we'll wait an hour for you. You know, that seems reasonable to us. But see, the Lord, in the same way He knew, he knew the hearts and the minds of these first two guys, He knows the heart and the mind of this fellow too. He knew that in his heart, there was a longing. There was a double-mindedness. Yes, there is a desire to follow Jesus, but there's also a desire for family, and he's caught in the middle. And so Jesus says to this man, no man after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. What's going to happen if this guy goes home and tells his family members, you know, I've decided... I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. What's his wife going to say? No, you're not, buddy. <laughs> you're standing right here with me. The kids are going to start crying. Daddy, Daddy, don't leave. Mom and Dad are going to say, that's the stupidest decision I've ever heard in my life. You know, he's going to have these strong temptations to stay. And so Jesus says, don't even go home. Follow me. You're looking back. You put your hand to the plow by saying you want to follow me. Don't look back. Now, what happens if you're plowing a furrow and you keep looking back like this while you're trying to plow your furrow? You go all over the place, don't you? You can't plow a straight line. It's like if you're driving down the freeway at 65 miles an hour and your kids are fighting and you turn around like this. Stop that, stop that. Whoa! And you're swerving all over the place. That's what he's saying here. You can't follow me in a straight path if you're always looking back and longing for what's behind you. Can you remember anybody else in the Bible who looked back? Lot's wife? She was turned into a pillar of salt. She loved the old life. Yeah, she wanted to escape the fire that was coming, but she loved the old life and she couldn't make up her mind. So you have to be decided if you're going to follow Jesus. You've got to make up your mind. Are you decided? You know, we sing that old camp song. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Have you made that decision that you're not going to turn back? Whatever happens, come what may, you may lose a child in the process. Are you going to turn back? You may suffer with terrible illness. Are you going to turn back? Your wife or your husband may leave you. I don't know what's going to happen, but are you going to turn away when you think God isn't dealing fairly with you? He's not being fair. He's not being kind with you. My friends, God is kind. God is good. He knows a whole lot more than we do what needs to be done in our lives. We, we can't second-guess God. We need to be like Job, who got down in the dust, and he was willing, Lord, though you slay me, I'll serve you. Old John Bunyan, when he wrote that book, Pilgrim's Progress, he called this man, Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> He's got like two heads. One head looks this way, one head looks that way. He's facing both ways all the time. This man wasn't ready for the kingdom. Did you hear Jesus say that? No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit 
He's not ready for the kingdom. He can't have the kingdom. And if you're not ready to make a decision to follow Jesus, no matter what, no conditions, no qualifications, you're not ready yet for the kingdom. You might be close, and I thank God that you're close, but you're not yet ready for the kingdom. Is this you, anybody here? Are you this man, Mr. Divided? Mr. Double-minded? I just encourage you, make up your mind this morning. Jesus is my supreme treasure and He has my heart and He has my life. Come what may, I'm following Jesus Christ. Now, let's see, how would we apply this passage, these three different men? We don't live in the same culture in the same day in the same age that they do, do we? We don't live in a day when Jesus is walking around on the earth so we can just forsake everything and follow Jesus like they did. What does it mean for us to totally commit our lives to Jesus Christ? Well, we, we look at this and we, we think to ourselves, well, the requirements for discipleship must surely have changed since the first century. No, they're the same. Same requirements, we just live them out a little bit differently than they did at that time. You see, whatever is most important to you, whatever is more important to you than Jesus Christ will ultimately kill you. It'll destroy you. So actually, it's, it's for you, in your own best interest just to unconditionally surrender. Because if you don't, it'll destroy you. And none of us ultimately wants that. So we need to search our hearts this morning. Am I a true disciple of Jesus? Have I surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Does He have my obedience? Or are there areas where I'm just unwilling to obey Him? He puts His finger on a sin in my life. And I'm not willing to face it. I just kind of ignore that one. I just flip the page of my Bible when I get to that one. And I go on with something else. Friends, I encourage you this morning. I exhort you. I challenge you in Jesus' name to give Him all the, the full control of your life this morning. You know, I, I, it really doesn't matter if you've prayed the sinner's prayer. It doesn't matter how many altars you've gone to, how many evangelistic crusades you've stand up, stood up at. It doesn't matter if you've got Jesus' name tattooed all over your arms or your belly or your back. None of that's going to save you. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, we think it, everyone will. We think anyone who makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord is going to make it. Jesus said, No, that's not the case. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A life of obedience is the necessary evidence that you have been born again. And if there is not fruit of an obedient life to Jesus Christ, my friend, you're not born again. You're still in your sins. You're not a Christian. I don't care how many times you've raised your hand and said, yes, I'm saved. How many times you've come up here and taken communion. It doesn't matter. And you say, Lord, I was a member of the bridge. The Lord's going to say, so what? So what? Did your life give evidence that you followed me? Were you holding back from me? Were you unwilling to give me your life? To surrender to me as Lord and do what I called you to do? That's what the Lord, when He, when he plays your life, that's what He's looking for. Evidence that you had surrendered your life to Him as Lord. So, we have either here 
the real deal this morning, or we have pretenders? Because you've all come to church, meaning that you have some interest in Christianity. But are you a pretender? Do you follow Jesus when it's convenient? Do you show up here on Sunday morning when it's convenient? And then when there's an NFL game on that looks a little exciting, stay home to watch the game? Do you obey Jesus when other Christians are watching you and disobey when they're not? Do you make a profession when you're hanging out with Christian people, church people, but yet when nobody's around, you love to hang out with worldly, non-Christian people because you love the sin that they participate in? So we need to ask ourselves, am I a pretender or am I the real thing? During the week, are you involved using profanity, using the name of the Lord in vain, using it as a swear word? Are you involved looking at pornography during the week? Are you involved in sexual relations with somebody you're not married to? My friends, it gets real, real close to home. Are you considering an illicit affair with someone that you're not married to? Or perhaps you're even in the midst of one. My friend, don't be a pretender. Repent. Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge Him as Lord and be willing this morning to turn away from sin and to follow Him as He gives you the strength to do so. Those of you who are pretending the truth is Jesus isn't number one. He's number two or number three or number four or number five or number six. But he's not number one. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you're so worried about, they'll take care of themselves. God's going to provide for you. You seek first Christ and his kingdom. And so, folks, we need to get serious. You need to get serious. I hope those of you who this applies to, you know, you know that it applies to you. That you, you know deep down in your heart you're not serious about Jesus Christ. You know you're playing games. You're playing church. You're coming to church, but you're not committed. You're not serious. You're not surrendered to Him. And the Lord would speak to you today, this is the day of salvation. Repent. That means turn away from that old life. Trust. That means turn around and go towards Jesus. Trust Him. Hold on to Him as your only hope. My friend, you're in a desperate situation today. If you're lost, you're headed for eternal burnings. And it's no fiction. The one who talked most about hell was Jesus Christ, and He ought to know. He talked about it over and over and over, and He didn't want people to go there. He would rather that you would repent and live than that you would burn. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll never cast him out. So don't be afraid that if you come to Jesus, you're going to get cast out. Come on his terms. His terms are surrender. Unconditional surrender. Wave the white flag. I surrender to you, Jesus. And I'm willing to start following you today and I will follow you the rest of my life. Not for the next 10 weeks 
or until things get a little boring at church or whatever. I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. Come what may, Lord Jesus. And you say, well, how can a person know whether they're, they're the real thing, a true disciple, or whether they're just playing games? Let me just give you three practical, easy tests. And this is just for starters, okay? There's more than what I could say. These are just real, easy, practical tests. When the Lord reviews your life on Judgment Day, He's going to look at some things. He's going to look at how you spent your time, how you spent your money, and how you spent your talents. Time, talents, and treasure. First of all, your time. Is your time committed to Jesus Christ? Is it really? Are you committed to Him as a disciple? That when the church gathers, because you know it's the will of God for you to be with the church when it gathers, you make a commitment to be there when the church gathers. Rather than going to the lake or to the movies or to the ball game or a hundred other things that we can find to do, you say, this is where the Lord wants me. Or when there's a missional community, do you make it your priority to be an involved participant in a missional community on mission with other brothers and sisters to reach lost people? You have to give of your time to do that, don't you? That's a commitment of time. And when you have free time and you're not providing for your family through jobs or work or whatever else, when you have free time, do you ask the Lord, what do you want me to do at this time, Lord? What do you want me to do at this time? It's yours. I'm your servant. Let's talk about our money for a minute. A lot of people get real nervous when you talk about money, but Jesus talked about it all the time. And we shouldn't be embarrassed or afraid to talk about it. Because it, it tells us where our heart is. There's two types of people, two types of professing Christians. The one will they'll pay all of their bills, and then they say, well, if I have anything left over at the end of the month after I pay my bills, I'll give something to Jesus. And you know, I, I thank the Lord that that when we got married early on, we learned the lesson that, it, no, that's, that's completely backwards. The Bible over in Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, and then He'll fill your barns with plenty and your vats with new wine. What He's saying there is, take the first and the best that you have and give that to Jesus before you do anything else. And to, before you pay your bills, give the Lord an offering. Show Him that He's worth it. That you value him supremely above everybody else and anything else. And the, the, the crazy thing about it is that if you do that, he blesses you. He always makes sense to me. I, I remember times when we couldn't scrape together two nickels when we were first married. But we had made a commitment that the Lord comes first when it comes to our giving. And he always saw us through. Debbie was at home with little babies and I had a job that didn't pay very much. And we... And back then, my rent was $295 a month, so I wasn't making much money. <laughs> but the Lord always took care of us. Sometimes we'd find an envelope with five bucks in it, and someone would say, go treat yourself to McDonald's. <laughs> and we would go, and we would thank God for that. But I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce. Take the first and the best. You get that check? Okay, Lord, this is yours. Now, I'm not telling you how much that has to be. In the New Testament, we don't have any formula or any certain percentage. In the Old Testament, they gave a tithe. Actually, they gave three of them. It amounted to about 23 and a third percent for Old Testament believers. I would, th there's no biblical New Testament precedent for this, but if you were to ask my opinion where you, you should start, I would say, I would say probably 10% is a good starting place. It's like training wheels. Not that you have to do that, 
But I think it's a good place to start. But then don't put limits on it. That's just the starting place. You, you want to see the Lord bless you so that you're giving 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 percent because you want to see the kingdom grow. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, aren't you going to be excited and happy to know that thousands and thousands of dollars were channeled through you to see lives saved and people have populated heaven because you funded missionaries that went to this place or that place or you helped your local church reach out to the local community and make disciples. So time, talents, treasure. Let's talk about talents. Your spiritual gifts, your talents, your abilities. This just basically comes down to serving. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you're willing to serve. You're willing to serve in the body. You're willing to say, okay, where are their needs and how can I help to meet needs within this particular body? Maybe it's in the nursery. Maybe it's getting here at 8.30 like some of the brothers do to set up the room, get the sound equipment going. Maybe it's to bring food to share with people. Maybe it's to look around for someone who's hurting on that Sunday and go talk to them after service and pray for them. You learn to serve. You learn to figure out, well, what can I do good? And I want to just pour out my life with the gifts God has given me for the benefit of His, of his body and the benefit of lost people for the glory of Jesus Christ. So you've got time, you've got talents, and you've got treasure. You've got money, time, and possessions, and you've got abilities that God has given you. Show evidence from your life that you're a disciple, that Jesus comes first. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do pray that you would help each one to internalize and to apply and take a step of faith today. Lord, for those people who are not Christians, give them grace to humble themselves, to surrender their life to Christ as Lord and King and begin following Him. Not the sham following, not the pretend following, the real thing, where they're repenting and turning from sin and trusting Jesus. And Lord, those who are weak saints, make them strong today. Make all of us ready for this next commitment, Lord, that Jesus has first place. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory and all the praise, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen.